As we begin, let's ask the Lord for His help. Father, we say again, great are You, Lord. You are holy. You are just. And it is by Your power and not our own that we trust in Your love. You are faithful. You are true, merciful. And in Your mercy given to us in Christ Jesus, You prove that You are love. And this is love, not that we loved You, but that You loved us and sent Your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God, the passage we're going to look at tonight, uh, again, as that song did, sings the praises of Your character and Your attributes, particularly the character of Your Son. God, everything that we look at tonight is simply going to be truth about Him. There are no instructions given to us. Uh, There are no words said about us. Uh, Everything that we will read in these six verses is about Him. And so, God, I pray that You would point us to Him. And I pray that you would direct our lives to be lived for Him. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we read, I want to share with you one of my most vivid memories from grade school. It was an event called Field Day. How many of you had a field day when you were in school? So most of you know what Field Day is all about. There's the three-legged race and the sack race, and all other kinds of races and other things like that. Uh, usually field day was a really good day for me because I was a good athlete when I was younger and in good shape. Uh, and so on field day, I would uh, gather to myself lots of, lots of ribbons, uh, lots of red ribbons and white ribbons, and not a few blue ribbons as well. Uh, but the field day that I actually remember the most was field day of 1987, um, I was in the fourth grade, and the reason I remember that particular field day, as some of you are looking at each other like, in 1987, um, I was 40. Um, but in 1987, I was in the fourth grade, and I remember field day of 1987 particularly because uh, it wasn't as good as the other years. Uh, on field day of 1987, I came away with no blue ribbons. In fact, I came away with no ribbons at all on that day, and I couldn't remember... Uh, As it ended, and as we went back to our classrooms and got ready to go home for the day, I can remember throwing for myself uh, a a grand pity party, uh, claiming that the judges didn't know what they were doing, uh, that the the partner I had in the three-legged race was just a dud uh, and a good-for-nothing, that the potato sack was defective, and everything else that you could think of for the reasons why I didn't win any ribbons that year. Uh, And the fact of the matter was is that none of those things were true. I just couldn't stand to lose. Uh, And I acted as though field day ought to have been designed specifically so that I would get to have first place in all the events. That's the way I acted. And it's a humorous story, and yet it's a troubling story. It's humorous because all of us have been there as children and done those kinds of things. And it's also humorous because as we've grown and have our own children or observe other people's children, we see other children pitching fits just like that. Uh, but it's troubling because the reality is 
that as we've grown into adults, most of us aren't a whole lot different than we were as children. We're just a little bit more sophisticated in the way that we throw our fits. The truth of the matter is, most of us often still whine and complain when we don't get our way. Most of us are still tempted to blame others for our own incompetence. Most of us still want to be recognized and applauded and thought of as really wonderful people and we get our feelings hurt when we're not. And most of us still throw pity parties, maybe a lot more quiet pity parties, but pity parties nonetheless for ourselves when those things don't happen. If you don't believe me, I'll just encourage you to ask a coworker or a roommate or a spouse or a friend to get out a video camera and tape you the next time you get stuck in a traffic jam or the next time your spouse calls into question the way that you're spending the family's money or the next time you're reprimanded for doing something that you know is not your fault. It may happen at work. It may happen in other places. But in these instances, if you get to watch yourself, and more than that, if you get to see what's actually going on in your heart, you know and I know that we often respond just like that fourth grade kid that didn't get his way on field day. So though we're still, or though we're more sophisticated oftentimes than our children, we're still in many cases functioning as though we're the most important human beings in the universe. And that's a deeply sinful way to think, isn't it? We don't think that way all the time, but it sneaks up on us. And it's deeply sinful, first of all, because it's pride, isn't it? We're putting ourselves on a pedestal that we haven't earned and that we don't deserve. And it's also deeply sinful because it's idolatry. For us to be bowed up with pride is idolatry. I read, I'm reading a book about humility and the author's definition of pride in that book is contending for supremacy with God. It's a good definition. Pride is contending for supremacy with with God. The reason why it's idolatry to be bowed up with pride and to act like everything ought to revolve around you is because God hasn't designed the universe so that it would revolve around you. He has designed the universe, as we're going to see, so that Jesus, not us, would come to have first place in everything. And I want to show you that now as we read Colossians 1, 15-20, praying that God would use this to exalt Christ in our minds and to humble us in our minds. He, meaning Jesus, all the He's in this passage are Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And what I want to do is I want... I want you to see that the key phrase in this passage is verse 18 and the last phrase of verse 18. Verse 18c, we'll call it, because there are three three clauses in verse 18. So verse 18c, 
so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. That is the key to this entire six-verse passage. Everything else in these verses is derivative from that one phrase. So that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Now let me tell you why I know that it's the key phrase. I know that it's the key phrase, first of all, because everything that comes before it is true so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Do you see that? Everything is one long sentence. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the one who created all things. Verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Verse 18, He's the head of the body, and He's the firstborn from the dead. All of that, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. So verse 18c is the result of everything in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. And it's also the cause of everything that follows it. Because everything that follows it is prefaced in verse 19 with the word for, which is also it's the same word as because. So, because it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. Because, where's the because pointing to? Well, it's pointing to verse 18c. He Himself will come to have first place in everything because... It was the Father's good will. So the reason He has first place in everything is because of what happens in verses 19 and 20 and because of what happens in verses 16 through 18, He has first place in everything. So first place in everything is tied by the word so that and by the word for to everything else in this passage. And it's also important to note the fact that 18c is all-inclusive. He will have come to have first place in everything. That phrase, in everything, is drawing in everything that he's just said in the other parts of the verses. So that's important. So that's drawing in it all and saying this is the summary statement. And also, I'll just point out to you that the words he and him are used 11 times in these six verses. Let me just read it to you quickly, emphasizing those words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Him, 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 Him. The whole thing is about Jesus. And verse 18c is the summary. Jesus is what this whole passage is about. He is in the first place. So this phrase, so that He will come to have first place in everything, is the summary statement of the passage. Okay, And in fact, it's the summary statement of God's entire plan for the world. And that's what the passage is going to go on and explain. So we need to make sure we get that straight. God's summary plan for the entire history of the world is that Jesus Christ would come to have first place in everything. God created the world. God planned its history. God planned redemption for the world so that Jesus would come to have first place in everything. So Jesus was not just an afterthought when things got messed up. He's not just an antiseptic that God pulled out to pour on the wound when Adam and Eve sinned. Jesus was and Jesus is always God's goal 
in creation and in redemption. So if someone asks you any of the major life questions that people sometimes ask, questions like, why does the world exist? Why do we exist? What's the meaning of life? Why did God create a world where so much has gone wrong? If anybody asks you any of those kinds of questions, a satisfactory answer to all those questions would be, so that Jesus will come to have first place in everything. Why did God make the world? So that Jesus would have first place in everything. Why did He make us? So that Jesus would have first place in everything. Why is the world so messed up? Strange as it sounds, so that Jesus will have first place in everything. And we'll talk about what that means as we go on. So that's the core truth of the passage, that God created the entire world. He planned its history and its redemption so that Jesus would come to have first place in everything. I'm repeating that and repeating that and repeating that. I think verse 18c is one of the most important passages or sections in the Bible. And the rest of the passage then simply fleshes out what it means for Jesus to be in first place in every situation. Specifically, it answers the question, why and how does Jesus come to have first place? Why does He have first place? And how does it work out that He has first place? And I want to show you nine reasons from these verses, and I'll try to be brief with each one so that we can cover them all uh, and get done. But I want you to just walk through me from verse fi- through with me from verse 15 down through verse 20 and just see what God says about His Son and revel in that and know how great Jesus is. Nine, nine reasons, nine ways that Jesus is in first place in everything. First, uh, from verse 15, Jesus is a perfect picture, the perfect picture of God. See what He says there, beginning verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Image means picture. He is a perfect picture, as the song that we sing sometimes says. In Mississippi, uh, you'll hear a phrase like this. If you have a father and a son, and the son looks just like the father, somebody will say to you, you really marked that boy. And what they mean is, he looks exactly like you. And that's exactly what he's saying here in the first part of verse 15. That Jesus looks exactly like His Father. More than any other human child ever looked like His Father. Hebrews 1-2 says He's the exact representation of God. And there's a sense in which God has marked all of us. Okay, We all know that. We are all created in the image of God. And so all of us in some ways reflect what God is like. But there's no one who reflects what God is like like Jesus. There's no one besides Jesus who is without sin, like God is without sin. There's no one like Jesus who possesses God's power, like Jesus possesses God's power. There's no one else who perfectly portrays all the attributes and characteristics of God, like Jesus. God is unchanging. No one except Jesus is unchanging. No human being. God is completely merciful. There's none of us that are completely merciful but Jesus. God is completely holy. And there's none of us that are completely holy except for Jesus. And so, the point of the first clause here in this passage is that in a very real sense, we may say, if you want to know what God is like, you need to look no further than the person of Jesus. It's an exact portrait of what God is like. So that's the first thing. That's the first thing that makes Jesus in the first place is that no one else pictures God like He does. The second thing is this, that Jesus is God's favorite Son. 15b, the firstborn of all creation. 
We need to be careful here because we could read that divorced from the rest of the Scripture and think that what that's saying is that Jesus is part of the creation and that therefore there was a time when Jesus did not exist and that when God began to create things, that the first thing He created was Jesus. That's what it sounds like if you read it divorced from the rest of the Scriptures. But if we read the rest of the Scriptures, we know, for instance, from John 1.1 that Jesus was not created. That He was in the beginning with God. He was there when God began to create. He wasn't created. And we also know from verse 19, which we're going to cover in more depth in a moment, that in, the, uh, in uh, Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells. So Jesus is very God of very God. And to be God, by definition, you have to be uncreated. So we know that this doesn't mean that Jesus was sometime created and He was the first thing that was created. I think what it rather is, is a figure of speech. Rather than being a technical term for Jesus being the first thing created, I think it's a figure of speech that's saying, among all the things that are created, Jesus is more important than them. Just like a firstborn son in the Old Testament is more important than all the other children. So Jesus, who was literally born, though not created, born as a human, but not created as God, is God's favorite Son among all of His other children. God loves Jesus more than He loves any of us. And He always will. So if you think of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament and how his father loved him more than he loved all of his other children. A human father ought not to do that, but nonetheless, Joseph's father did. He made him the special coat of many colors. And it was very clear that among all the twelve sons, Joseph was the chief among the twelve in that father's eyes. That's the way God sees Jesus. He has a name like that is above every other name, just like Joseph's coat was putting him above every other brother. So God loves Jesus more than He loves anyone else. And let me just put that together with a verse like John 3.16. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So if you read John 3.16, you might say, well, it sounds like God loves His Son, but He loves us more because He had to pick between us dying and Jesus dying, and He let Jesus die. So how can you say God loves Jesus more than us? Well, the reason why Jesus died is because God wanted us to live. But more important than that, By Jesus dying and rising from the dead, He gained, Philippians 2 says, a name which is above every name. So God loved the world enough to send Jesus to die, but He still loved Jesus more than us because Jesus' reward for His death is even bigger than our reward. We get life. We get to be with God forever. But Jesus gets to be the King of heaven. We get to go to heaven. He gets to be the King of heaven. And He only got that because He died. And so in God sending Jesus to die for us, He wasn't putting us above Jesus. He was actually putting Jesus above us. And that's the way it always is. Jesus is God's favorite child. Thirdly, we can say that Jesus is the Creator of all things. That's right there clearly in verse 16. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities All things have been created through Him and for Him. So when we think of creation, we shouldn't just think of God in general. We should think of Jesus in specific. When we read Genesis 1 and 2, we shouldn't just think of God out in heaven somewhere, some nebulous vision of God speaking. We should think of Jesus because here in verse 16, it tells us that Jesus was the one who was doing all that. In fact, 
Genesis 1.26 lets us in on the fact that Jesus was there when God says in that verse, let us create man in our image. Genesis 1.26 tells you that it wasn't just the Father who was there doing it. There was someone else there. And then we get to the New Testament and we find out who that someone was. It was the Son who was, as John 1.1 says, in the beginning with God and who was God. John 1.1 1, 1 calls Jesus the Word of God. So when Genesis 1 says that God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse in the heavens, and there was an expanse. And God said, let the waters be separated and form seas, and it was so. When it says God said, and these things happened, that's a signal to us to think about Jesus. Because God doesn't say anything apart from His Word. And John 1 says Jesus is the Word. And so the power that is happening in Genesis 1, the power in creation, is none other than Jesus, who's the Word of God. So Jesus is the Creator of all things. Fourthly, Jesus is in first place because He existed before all things. And that's logical. If we've just said He created all things, He must have existed before all things. But that's what Paul says in verse 17a. He is before all things. We hit on that from Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image. We hit on it in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So another reason why Jesus is in the first place is very simply because He existed before anything else did. Before Abraham was, I am, He says. And so He's greater than Abraham and He's greater than us. Number five, Jesus is the sustainer of all things. Verse 17b, in Him all things hold together. So not only did Jesus create everything that he that is, but He upholds everything that is by the word of His power, Hebrews 1.3 says. Simply by the word of His power, by speaking, Jesus is upholding everything that you see. Now I want you to think about some things that are being upheld by the word of His power right now. The planets stay in orbit around the sun, not simply because of gravity, but because of a God who created gravity, a Jesus who created gravity, and who every day makes sure that gravity works exactly like it's supposed to. That's why we don't fall into oblivion. The airplane that Charles is hopefully already on the ground and out of was held up tonight, not simply by the sheer force of wind blowing under wings, but because of a God who created wind and created the possibility for wings and who makes sure that it works just like it's supposed to. That's Jesus doing that. The ozone layer stays in space so that we don't all burn up by the Word of Jesus' power. Our lungs fill up with air and don't collapse by the Word of Jesus' power. The roof on this building and the roof on your house stays where it is, not because there are timbers under it mainly, but because God created a system where timbers can hold up buildings and then God keeps those timbers sturdy and prevents them from cracking and crumbling and the house falling on our heads. The U.S. government stays in place by the Word of God's power, not because a certain person's in office or a certain person's not in office. God's in control of it all no matter who is in there. And so the point is, everything that we see in the world doesn't just exist because it exists. It exists and it maintains because Jesus Christ is actively in the world making sure that things uphold by the Word of His power. So we don't need to think of the universe in the ways that people around us think of it. 
Some people around us think of the universe as just a big chance experiment. Things happened by chance, and therefore we exist, we evolved into this what we are, and we have trees by chance, and there's oxygen for us to breathe by chance, and we live so far away from the sun so that we aren't too cold and aren't too hot. All that by chance. No, the Bible says all that is because Jesus makes it happen. And we also don't need to think of the Bible as some sort of a clock, like Jesus wound up a clock, like the clockmaker winds a clock and then gives it to you and it just runs on its own. That's not what's, what Paul is saying here. Jesus didn't just create a world that would run on, on Mother Nature's rules and then just let it be. He is actively making sure those rules function just like they're supposed to. And we shouldn't think of the world as a man-made playpen either, as though everything that happens in the world happens because men are so smart. And when things go haywire, it's got to be somebody's fault. So when a hurricane hits the Gulf Coast, it's got to be the president's fault. That's crazy. Jesus is the one who holds the hurricanes back and the one who lets them go. I heard a couple of weeks ago that they now think that the reason why the levees in New Orleans broke is because a barge, a huge barge that was on Lake Pontchartrain, got into that water and got moving so fast that it crashed into the levees and probably busted the hole open and flooded the whole ninth ward. And so what they're going to do now is they're going to investigate that and if they find that that's what happened, they're going to hold Ingram Ship Company hostage for billions of dollars because their barge got caught up in the torrent that everybody else's barge got in and theirs happened to go into the wrong place. And the reason for all of that is not simply because they're trying to get their money. The reason for all of that is because we live in a culture that thinks that man is in control of things. And that if Ingram and the men who run Ingram would have just been a little bit smarter, then none of this would have happened. And that's crazy thinking. Because here we read that all things are upheld by Him. All things hold together. Levies hold together or don't hold together because of Jesus not because of man's abilities or lack thereof. Now, number six, Jesus is the head of the church. He says that in the beginning of verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. Jesus and Jesus alone is in charge of what we do in this group and every other church that meets. That's why we're congregational in the way we decide things and not Episcopal. A congregational church like ours decides things as a group. An Episcopal church or a Roman Catholic church which has an Episcopal government has a bishop. And above him, an archbishop. And in Catholicism, above him, a pope. So the individual men are handing down decisions. The reason why we don't do that is because we want to recognize that yes, there is an individual man who hands down decisions, but his name is not Joseph Ratzinger. His name is not the Archbishop of Canterbury, His name is Jesus. That's why we do what we do. That's why we order all of our services, all of our practices, all of our documents around this book. Because we want, if Jesus is our ruler, we want to let Him speak. And the way and the place that He speaks is in this book. And so by letting this book control things and by letting Him speak through the whole congregation, we're making an attempt to let Him be the head and not me and not someone else. And if Jesus is the head and He's the ruler, then He ought to be allowed to speak as often as He likes. And that's why we open every service with an extended passage of Scripture, just to let Him speak. 
without anyone else interpreting. So Jesus is the head of the church. Number seven, Jesus was the first to obtain a resurrection body. He is the beginning, the middle of verse 18. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, this can be a little confusing because we recognize that in the Old Testament and the New, many people rose from the dead. Right? There were people in the Old Testament, there were people in the New Testament, including many people at the time of Jesus' death. You read about Jesus' death in Matthew 18, and we sung about it on Sunday. The moment Jesus died, the curtain was torn in two, and it says many believers rose from the dead, and they went into the city, and many people saw them. But apparently, all of those people in the Old and New Testaments rose from the dead only to die again. When they rose, they had the same physical fallen bodies that they had before they had died and that we have now. But up until this point in history, not this point only in Colossians, but this point in 2006, only Jesus has been given a resurrection body. You're in heaven right now. The only person who would have a body that you would see with a human body, a resurrection body, would be Jesus. Eventually, everyone who believes will follow Him in having that body. But, Jesus is the only one who didn't have to wait. And it's interesting because if you think it out, God didn't have to make all the Old Testament saints wait to get their bodies. And God doesn't have to make us wait to get our bodies. He could give us our bodies when we die. Why doesn't He do that? I don't know all the reasons, but I think one reason is so that He could say, in effect, Jesus is special. Jesus is more privileged than anyone else in the world. He only had to live three days without His body. We're going to have to live who knows how long without ours if Jesus doesn't come back soon. Only Jesus has a resurrection body. And in that way, again, He is first. He has the blue ribbon. Number eight, Jesus is, verse 19, God Himself. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, meaning all the fullness of the Father. Now, let me just give you some other Scripture references. I don't think that most of you um, would, would disagree with the fact that Jesus is, is said here to be God. But I want to give you some verses, and you may write them down, because you'll run into people who will say, that's crazy. Jesus isn't God in the flesh. All sorts of people will say that. And so let me give you some verses that might help you. Colossians 1, 2, 9, excuse me, Colossians 2, 9, uh, just over a column probably in your Bible. In Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Deity is a word for Godness. In Him all the fullness of Godness dwells in bodily form. John 1, 1, which we've referenced several times, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Revelation 1.8, Jesus speaking says, I am the Alpha and the Omega who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus Himself says that He's God. Mark 2, you remember the story of the paralytic man lowered in through the, root, through the hole in the roof. And Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are off in the corner grumbling to themselves. And what do they say? They say, who can forgive sins except only God? The Bible says Jesus heard their grumbling and He looked at them and He said, I'm going to show you that the Son of Man, meaning Himself, has power to forgive sins. And He raised that kid off that mat. 
But the point is, he knew that what they were saying was only God can forgive sins and he agreed with that. And then he turned around and said, now let me show you that I'm God. I'm going to show you that I can forgive his sins by raising him from the mat. And then in the book of John, you find Jesus taking God's name upon his lips about himself. God's name is I am that I am. Or simply, I am in the Old Testament. And the way that that's translated in the New Testament Greek is I, I am. Anytime in New Testament Greek where you're just saying, uh, I'm the pastor of Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church, it's just I am. But when they wanted to translate God's name in that way, they would say, I, I am. They would repeat the I. And the only person who says such things The only person who uses that language is Jesus. He says, before Abraham was, I, I am. He says, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, I am the bread of life. Over and over and over again, he's using God's name to describe himself in the book of John. And you'll find that as you read through it yourselves. So if there are any questions up until this point about whether Jesus belongs in first place, the fact that he is very God of very God should put those questions to rest. And therefore, Paul is only going to make one more statement about Jesus in the first place. And it's in verse 20 where he tells us that Jesus is the reconciler of everything that's wrong in this world. Jesus is the reconciler. Through Him, it was the Father's good pleasure, through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The reason why Jesus is a reconciler is because sin has left the world in an awful mess, hasn't it? The world we live in is ugly. The prayer requests that we share tonight, many of them, are evidence of the fact that we live in a world that is ruined because of original sin. The sin of Adam and Eve and our following in their steps and the curse that's on the world because of sin sin in the world, not necessarily an individual sin, but sin in the world is the reason why chemical leaks happen in plants that kill 45-year-old men. Sin in the world is why people have leukemia and die from it. Sin in the world is why people are blind and why people have seizures and why hurricanes happen and tsunamis happen and famines happen and wars happen. All of these things are in the world because of original sin. And sometimes, though not always, because of individual sin. Actual sin. And the even worse result of actual sin is that we are now at enmity with God. That's what verse 21 says. You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So worse than all the physical effects of sin is the effect between us and God that we have become His enemies. A thoughtful person will say to all of that, why did God allow Adam and Eve to sin then? If all of this was going to be the result, and God is a God of love, and God knew that we were going to be alienated from Him if they sinned and if we followed in their footsteps, why in the world would a God of love let that happen? And if you share the Gospel with people, eventually somebody's going to ask you that. And there are lots of reasons why God may have let Adam and Eve and us follow in sin. But the one main reason is so that there would be a need for a Savior. That's it. Why is the world like it is? So that we would need 
Jesus. The world needs a Savior. The world needs someone to come and make all things new, doesn't it? And it wouldn't need it if God wouldn't allowed us wouldn't have allowed us to sin. And individuals need a Savior. We need a Savior. We need somebody, verse 22, who has now reconciled us in His fleshly body through death in order to present us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. We need that. And the reason we need that is because God let us fall. So here's the logic. God let us fall. God let Adam and Eve fall. Not by accident. Not because... He wasn't watching that afternoon. He let them fall intentionally so that we would need a Savior so that Jesus could be lifted up. He let us fall so that Jesus could be lifted up. If we never fell, we wouldn't need Jesus. And Jesus was the plan all along, wasn't He? The Bible says He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So before God ever created the world, he knew that there was going to be a need for a Savior. He wanted there to be a need for a Savior so that Jesus would have first place. Jesus is not an antiseptic. He's not a stopgap measure. The plan was always for us to so badly need Him that He would come to have first place so that we would stand in here on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night and sing His praise. And we would never do that if we didn't need a Savior. Everything else that we've seen in these verses would not lift our hearts in praise like needing a Savior lifts our hearts in praise. So the fall was God's plan because redemption through Jesus was God's plan. So let me summarize as we close. God has designed a world in which Jesus is very God of very God in which He is the perfect picture of what God is like a world where Jesus existed before all things, created all things, sustains all things, is loved by God above all things, a world where Jesus makes all things new, a world where Jesus is the first one to have a resurrection body, a world where Jesus is the head of God's people, the church, so that in all these things and in everything, Jesus would come to have first place. Everything God is doing in the world is designed to push Jesus to the forefront. And according to verse 18c, it will happen. He Himself will come to have first place in everything. The question tonight is simply this. The question is not whether Jesus is going to have first place. The question is whether we're going to gladly join in God's purpose to make Him have first place whether we're going to willingly allow Him to have first place in our lives, or whether it's going to have to be by force. Are we going to willingly allow Jesus to have absolute authority over our lives? Are you going to willingly allow, gladly allow Jesus to have absolute authority over your family and the decisions you make? Jesus to have absolute authority over your work, whether you work, where you work, how often you work, and how you do your work. Is Jesus going to have first place in the way that you behave at school? Is He going to have first place in your secret thoughts that no one else but He and you know about? Is He going to have first place in your relationships? Is He going to have first place in your checkbook? Is He going to have first place in your entertainment habits? You know the areas where you struggle. And I know the areas where I struggle to let Jesus have the first place. And so we don't need to go in great detail tonight because we all know that there are areas that we hold back. 
The question then is, are we going to gladly let Jesus take home the blue ribbon in those areas? Or is He going to have to win it while we are kicking and screaming, throwing a pity party in our disobedience? Because we think we have to have it for ourselves. I want to pray that what God says will happen in Colossians 1 will happen willingly and gladly in our lives.